0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast, created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthew.3cr.org.au. And a very
1: warm welcome back to Solidarity
2: Breakfast.
0: A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they
2: trade in is not wheat,
3: they trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism
0: really important
1: to sort of express solidarity globally.
0: It really is a deal by corporations
4: for corporations.
1: The union forever defending
5: our rights down with the black... If
4: you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program.
0: Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au.
5: Solidarity forever!
3: Good morning everybody, Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. I hope you exercised your rights yesterday on the International Day of Working People on May Day. If you want to continue the celebration, the May Day Committee is having an online celebration because of COVID-19 on on Sunday. Go to their webpage for information. And today, we're going to be swimming in history. And the reason why I'm taking this tact is that this week, during COVID stay at home, I've been worrying over how we deal with the issues of inequality and uh, the degradation of our um, environment after COVID, when clearly the strong arm of big business influence on government is in the ascendancy, more of the same. Uh, I've been reading Dr. Liam Byrne's new book, Becoming John Curtin and James Scullin, The Making of the Modern Labour Party, and I found some surprising ideas from the past, not least that the dominance of monopoly power was not new, is not new, nor the tight hand of grasping business dressed up as the central power in society – It's not new either So first up we focus on Curtin and Scullin We'll follow that with the moratorium Because it isn't every day that the people win on such a scale And as Humphrey McQueen reminds us in our final piece for the morning May 8th is the anniversary of the moratorium in Melbourne And I thought we should hear that fabulous Eureka dinner speech Given by Joan Coxage, our local bodicea
6: Kanja Gurujan, this is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yaru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Where I
3: Dr. Liam Byrne, the ACTU historian, will be launching his new book, Becoming John Curtin and James Scullin, The Making of the Modern Labor Party, in June. It's published by Melbourne University Press, and I was able to get a preview copy, and we'll we'll probably go back and uh, talk a bit more about the book in June when the book comes out. But I was fascinated by some of the parallels to the present day with the political world's Curtin and Scullen were in. Here is my chat with Liam. Some of the things that are happening nowadays are very reminiscent of history, and I know it's often said that uh, people don't realise that history actually is something that uh, can help you to understand the present and what decisions you might like to make. And, And when I heard that uh, your expertise was in John Curtin and James Scullin, uh, I started to realise that it would be really interesting to talk to somebody like you about the world that they Mm -hmm. inhabited and also how, during their lifetime, the Labour Party developed. One of the lines in the book, uh, you talk about how when the Labour Party came into existence in the 1890s, we had, uh, and then federation, you had a parliament that uh, basically had a governor and you'd have a governor and then you'd have a, a, a council that were made up of moneyed people and then these people made all the decisions at a business class. Uh, and in a lot of ways, that's quite similar to now, I'd have to say. Uh, so I figure that there's hmm. lots of things to learn from this past. Can you talk about the significance of Scullin and Curtin during this development of the Labor Party?
4: Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. I think that it's a useful frame as well to understand the different ways that politics exists in people's lives because one of the things that I was really struck by when I began the work that then led to this biography was just how early on in the, their careers... Curtin and Scullin began to be quite influential within the Labour movement and the Labour Party well before they became Prime Ministers. And it really sort of shows a lot about when we're talking about politics of the early federation or uh, even the late 19th century, a lot of the time people talk about politicians and parliaments and that form of politics alone. But actually, there's a major social movement that was trying to recreate Australia and to try and make it a more equal um, and fair place. And that Labour movement, that is how Scullin and Curtin um, both became the figures who we would know as the prime ministers uh, that they would later be. Because both of them, as members of the Labor movement, this is where they learnt the trade of politics. This is where they learnt how to think. This is where they learned how to write. Um, they were both Labor journalists. This is how they learnt um, how to communicate with others and to try and convince them. And it's where they developed their visions of the world and what they thought the world should be, um, which is really based, as I said before, on that idea that Australia's prosperity could be gained and protected through egalitarianism and greater equality. And I think that's, uh, you know, it's a real trend of politics in this early sort of period um, where ordinary people, so-called, through this movement were able to influence politics in a way that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to. And in many other countries in the world where you don't have a similar sort of movement with similar power, they're locked out of that sort of involvement. So I think that you really see, if you follow their careers from early activism all the way to prime ministership, you see the kind of unique nature of Australia, you see the contribution of the labour movement and the way politics was lived and experienced. And every single stage of that development, you see Curtin and Scullin from the beginning of Federation until Curtin's death in 1945, being involved, being active and consistently with this vision of what they think Australia should be.
3: And, you know, it's interesting too that there's this kind of DNA helix type of uh, connection in a way because both they didn't actually share the same politic in lots of ways.
4: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's really fascinating the way they live their lives in parallel. Uh, you know, they're both actually uh, born... Uh, in colonial uh, Victoria, in rural Victoria, or in small towns on either side of Ballarat. They both had uh, very similar sort of family backgrounds. Both were the children of uh, Irish migrants uh, and so on. They're both brought into the labour movement. But once they're in the labour movement, while they did have broad agreement in their early careers that they wanted Australia to be a more egalitarian and decent place, they did have very, very strong disagreements about what that would consist of, how to get there, um, and the best means through which to achieve that. And one of the early sort of disagreements between them was actually over the, the question of military uh, service and whether um, or not uh, young men should be compelled to submit to military service. So basically the idea was that in 1908, the Labor Party adopted a policy that young uh, men, so between the ages of 14 and 21, should be trained uh, to undergo compulsory training um, for their military uh, service and they should perform it through a period of time. Scullin massively supported this and thought that this, it was a wonderful idea whereas Curtin actually was completely against it. And so the policy was proposed by Labor in 1908. It was introduced uh, nationally in 1911. And this is something that you could see this real disagreement between the two uh, men over, because Curtin felt like this was going to create a greater trend towards militarism in Australia, whereas Skull and Ford, it was necessary for self-defence. So this, you can see all these different sort of issues that they have, this disagreement.
3: And, and the point I'm making... So and
4: I was just going to say, and it's quite interesting, because if you actually look at it later in their careers, Funnily enough, even though it was Scullin who um, opposed, uh, who supported the compulsory military service uh, program, it was Curtin who opposed it, actually it was Scullin as Prime Minister who uh, ended up removing this program many years later in 1930.
3: Yeah, and, and of course it was Curtin in the Second World War who... Uh, uh Had to support, did support the uh, the armed services, but what what I uh, there are so many things in that. Uh, What I was really getting at is that both of them are the the differences between the two uh, are played out now as well. So, Curtin comes from a socialist background, while um, Scullin is probably what they used to call moderate. and yeah. that really explains, actually, the complexion of the Labor Party now in lots of ways, or the Labor, the left movements in Australia.
4: Well, I think again, it's one of the things that you really see is that the Scullin and Curtin both represented like big visions of what they wanted Australia to be, but they did have those differences in what that would fully consist of. And you're quite right to say, Curtin, at this earlier stage of his life, was a member of the Victorian Socialist Party as quite an influential socialist thinker, whereas um, Scullin was definitely more on the moderate wing of uh, the uh, ALP. Although he did in 1921 support the socialization objective, which uh, currently still stands for the party. And I think what this period really shows is that, you know when people come together, even when they disagree on these things, when they have big ideas about what they want to achieve, that you can have kind of a creative contest of ideas, but people who have that broad program, but they've differences in how they think it can be achieved the debate and the discussion between them can actually fuel ideological generation and get people to think in different ways um, than they have before. And I think that certainly if you look around the international sort of centre-left around the world uh, and sort of, you know, if you look at developments that have been happening, for instance, in the Democratic Party in the United States, in the British Labour Party, um, as you say here, we can see that there, there are definitely clear contemporary resonances of these discussions and debates over what type of change should be sought, how extensive should it be, Um, is uh, this the sort of thing that can be done immediately or is going to take a long period of time. All these issues that are being debated on the international left, the issues that Curtin and Scullin were debating in the earlier part of the 20th century.
3: Yeah, no, I found it really fascinating. And a lot of stuff, because Australian Australian history is so short, uh, I was really uh, amazed at uh, how many things that are actually happening right now and being brought very clearly into the limelight with COVID you know, this opportunity for potential change as well as a a section of the uh, business class wanting it all to be exactly the same actually reflects uh, that period. So there's this fantastic quote about um, the speech when the Labour Party gets into power with Fisher uh, where where uh, Scullin does a speech because he actually gets into Parliament. He says um, that the private enterprise would would uh, have to actually uh, explain itself and that uh, that uh, justify itself, and no more would the market be able to operate unhindered, nor the government perceive its primary role as facilitating private enterprise. We're in the midst of a government that thinks that the only thing uh, that its job is to do is to facilitate business. It's like we've done a, a complete circle. The fight that uh, Scullin and Curtin and all all of the, um, the nation-building concept that they had, as well as all the other members of the Labour Party, is still in progress and hasn't changed at all, in fact. Or would that be...
4: Yeah, well, firstly, I, 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 well I think firstly, I'm really pleased that you uh, drew on that quote, uh, which is, it's a wonderful quote from this really incredible speech that Scullin gave, and it was literally his first act in Parliament was to give this speech, which shows how high uh, I've scene that he was held in in the Labor Party, that immediately after he was first elected, as junior as he was, he was basically given a job of explaining the Labor Party's position to the world, which is a really kind of incredible thing. But a lot of what Scullin was talking about, um, in the 1890s, there was a really devastating international depression and Australia felt its effects greatly. And both Scullin and Curtin were young um, men at that time. And so their life circumstances were drastically changed and altered by the fact that there was this major crisis of capitalism, um, effectively, and they could see around them that people's lives were being devastated, working people's lives were being devastated, despite the fact that working people had done nothing to create the crisis, but they were paying the cost of it. The early 1900s, you have a situation when the Labor Party, as it was um, becoming, it's that quote that you referred to from Scullin, was they were trying to find a different way to experiment with social policy to say, we won't go back to that, but we'll have a totally different type of society, a more equal one and a better one. And this debate is something that continues to go, this to and fro between them and the Conservatives all the way through the, um, up until Curtin's death, actually. Because, of course, then you have the Great Depression and then you have post-war reconstruction. I think that it's right to say that the you know these debates keep on coming up because they reveal something about the divide in society between different ideas. Should the market just have free reign or should there actually be a positive role that government can also play, not to totally replace the market, but to um, intervene in life to ensure that people get better circumstances and that experience of what the economy is is not um, simply exposed to market forces. Uh, I think what we can say is in recent decades, the sort of pendulum in that debate has swung towards the sort of like uh, pro-markets side, just the idea of just letting the market let it rip. But when we look at our history as a country, we've had substantial periods of time when government has intervened. That intervention has not been to totally replace the private sector, but it has been to make sure that the economy works more so towards the benefit of, um, of everybody. And that in those periods, actually, they've been quite successful. And I think that that's really important to reflect upon because of the discussions that you know, are happening now and are constantly happening is that there, it is not the case that there's only the market can possibly work and that there's only one way that these things can be done because it's been demonstrated in our history that there have been alternative approaches. And I think it's important for us to keep that uh, memory and that legacy in our minds as we approach the future.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. You've got this fantastic quote from Vladimir Lenin where he says, um, what sort of peculiar capitalist country is this uh, in which the workers' representatives predominate in the upper house and still recently did so in the lower house as well, and yet the capitalist system is in no danger.
6: (laughs) Are you there?
4: Yeah, it's uh, it's quite strange to think of uh, Vladimir Lenin, uh, the leader of the Russian Revolution, thinking so deeply about Australia and uh, writing. But again, this is one of the things that it's worth remembering that all those policies that I was talking about earlier, in the early part of the 20th century, the Australian Labor Party um, really drove to implement new social policies that were going to benefit working people. This was something that caught the eye of labor movements, progressive reformers, and so on all around the world. Um, If people are aware of Marilyn Lake's work, she's a wonderful historian who talks about the influence of the minimum wage, which was actually first introduced in Australia, and how people all around the world were looking, and particularly in America, were looking at Australia going, wow, this is incredible. This place is innovating things that nobody else has ever thought of. And again, it's really worth sort of thinking that Australia has, in our past, set international benchmarks and standards for social progress, social equality, and so on. Now, of course, for Lenin, he was a, um, a, you know, a, a staunch anti-capitalist revolutionary, so he wouldn't endorse that approach because he wants to get rid of the system, not to change it uh, to benefit working people. But what we can see is that there's you know, that real tradition of success of making people's lives better in Australia and doing that through um, you know, social reforms which you know, mitigate and prevent the market from just controlling people's lives and their destinies and actually making your life and your capabilities conditioned upon more than you know, the circumstances of your birth. And that's so, you know, it's the fair go. It's so integral to our um, history as a country. And this is something that people like Curtin and Scullin worked their entire lives to try and achieve. And I think that kind of story of how they, they did it in different ways and so on, but that's what's so inspiring about them, that absolute commitment throughout their lives to try and get that fair go for, um, for working people in Australia. You know, and th- that was their political progress. That was their program.
3: The, the idea that government has a role in... Um in affecting positive change for community that i mean it was it's not a given it was something that was developed as an ideological stance
4: absolutely and it was it was developed that way because it worked and this is one of the things that you see as well of course um you know john Curtin uh was a wartime prime minister uh, during the second world war uh but while he sort of led the uh, effort to win the war. He was also very, very concerned with the idea of, well, how do we then win the peace? So in other words, how do we make sure that after the war, the country is actually even better than it was before, and that the sacrifices that we're making now for this conflict, that they're going to then be sort of rewarded by this better future ahead of us? And this is, you know, not something that just kind of came out of nowhere. It was his long experience, including during the First World War, where he realised that there's a huge amount of capacity within the government to mobilise the economy, uh, to intervene into the economy and so on, which was demonstrated through the uh, wartime period where manufacturing and so on, um, of course, for obvious reasons, had to be geared towards war production. Well, if in a time of war you could you know, totally change the way the economy works to that outcome, he said, well, why can't we in peace change the way our economy works to make sure that we're fighting a war against poverty, we're fighting a war against want, we're fighting a war against the type of conditions which marked Australia during the Great Depression and so on. So, you know, this vision of the government, you're quite right, This wasn't you know, just natural, it wasn't just there, it was something that had to be developed. But it was also developed because it got practical results.
3: Well, you know, this, this quote is, you know, what he was talking about was 1910. This is what I find really fascinating. Uh, people, it's glib, it's said as if it's just part of the fabric, but actually it's nuts and bolts, uh, uh, blood, sweat and tears. So in 1910, a well, he was looking at a well-developed and far-reaching vision of a different and more egalitarian Australia by extensive government action. Uh, like I said, it doesn't come from nowhere, like you said, too.
4: Absolutely. Yeah, and that's you know the sort of thing about these sort of visions is I think that the reality is, as long as there is inequality in our society and as long as people are denied opportunities, there will always be people who are dreaming of a better our future. And the great thing about Curtin and Scullin um, is you can see that these are political careers of people who are thinking through practically, how do we make that vision of what Australia could be a reality? And I think that's, you know, it's a really lovely thing to see that these people who are so integral to our history and, you know, they there in such defining moments. To actually go back and look at their stories and really take the sort of hope and inspiration from it. I mean, there's plenty of down points in their careers, don't get me wrong, and plenty of, sort of devastating circumstances and also things in their politics that uh, we wouldn't agree with today. But that sort of story of constantly striving towards finding practical ways to, you know, make Australia a more fair and a more decent place, and that their careers were sustained and propelled by these visions, like actually believing in stuff, made them prime ministers. It wasn't, the, you know, it wasn't a hindrance to their careers or so on. You know, I think that's a really inspiring story for anybody who, you know, looks around the world today and says, well, I actually do think that there's a better, more equal future ahead of us if we can, you know, strive to realise it. And this, you know, in that sense, these are why they're so integral to us today.
3: Yeah, yeah. And also these other elements that I found fascinating, the th- the uh, dragons that they needed to try and defeat, which are still the same dragons. One of them, of course, being the uh, monopolies and the combines, uh, external investments, investors, companies that dominated and uh, controlled the Australian economy. The- these have parallels with now.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the point that they're making was that there are wealthy vested interests who will try and impede reform and who will try and impede things that will make life uh, more equal. You know, big corporations, people with uh, immense amount of power and people on the political right who are committed to a particular way that they think politics and economics should be done. And this is, you know, again, what they're, they're sort of talking about is that if you want to um, you know, try and make effective and progressive change, then you've got to have a vision of what it is you want to achieve. You've got to communicate that to people. You've got to win that kind of intellectual and ideological um, sort of battle, if you will. And you've got to have the capacity to do that. And being involved in a movement of people who want to achieve that um, is is the best way to do it. It's not just about being prime minister. It's about actually winning that consensus and uh, changing those ideas. And I think that's what we can see really over the period of their careers was there's ups and downs, but there is this uh, change in consensus, change in understanding of what the possibilities of change are. And, you know, I think that people who don't want the world to change, the greatest asset that they have on their side is making people think the world can't change. Well, Curtin and Scullin were in a business of convincing people the world could change. And that was, yeah, again, that's part of what makes them so inspiring.
3: Well, there's just one other thing. I mean, I know that, uh, like Scullin, for example, and it put it into place why land tax was such an important driver um, for him. Uh But other ways of practically dealing with the um, problems that they perceived of inequality are their methods of uh, change, of causing change in the real world, because that's what they are. It's about a real world, because they battled in the real world. They lost and then they gained. Um, What are the key elements to that sort of... um, I mean, Scullin was a bit of a mentor or a friend of Curtin during the period. So there's bonds that are important.
4: Yeah, that's right. I mean, Curtin and Scullin's relationship is really interesting because, uh, you know, it, it, it changes a lot over the years, as you would expect. But it's, it's quite consistent. And in a way, I think people haven't really traced before. So it begins a lot earlier. Um, because, of course, they were both involved in the Victorian Labor Party. They were both involved in the union movement in Victoria. So they, of course, went to similar events um, and so on. They were drawn into the big sort of um, issues of their time, the uh, conscription movement of 1916, the discussions over socialisation in 1921 and so on. So there is that real relationship between them. And then Scullin becomes Prime Minister um, just as John Curtin enters enters Parliament for the first time. Um, This is during the period of the Depression. So there's disagreements that begin to emerge between them. But then uh, Curtin uh, follows Scullin as the Labor Party leader in 1935. And within a few years, he's facing his own crisis uh, as leader of Australia during war. You know, this incredible sort of um, threat that we face. And Scullin in that time actually becomes really, really close friends uh, to Curtin. Their, their relationship really develops. Curtin relies on him for a lot of advice. Um, and so it's interesting sort of thing that actually Scullin was not a minister in Curtin's government, yet his office was next to Curtin. Uh, which I think indicates just how significant he became you know, as somebody who would come in and sort of provide advice. And there's key issues where you see Curtin quite strongly relying uh, on Skull. And so that relationship between them does emerge, develop, and change. And during that period of the war in particular, they, um, the idea becomes a thing called reconstruction. So it's what I was referring to earlier, this idea of we must not just win the war, but we also must win the peace, win the war and create a better world afterwards. And that idea was reconstruction. And so this was the idea that everybody should... You know, who live uh, Australians should have certain rights um, and certain social supports. But absolutely underpinning that was this idea that there should be full employment and that there should be dignity of work, there should be meaningful work, um, and there should be security in work, Uh, and that people should have a right to be able to, you know, to labour and to be supported in that labour. So full employment was really integral um, to their idea of how um, you know society after the war should um, be run. But then around that, and on top of that, it also meant that the people who weren't able to work or had worked for a certain period of time, they should have pensions. They should have social support. Society should give back to them and support them. People should live in decent houses. As court support remember, remembered for many working um, people before the war, actually living conditions were often quite terrible. And so this idea we should totally reconstruct the way our housing situation um, is, and most of our modern cities have actually come to reflect that period of change think there should be educational opportunities that never existed before. And just because you're from uh, you're a working person, you shouldn't be denied those educational opportunities. You should be able to um, advance and sort of support yourself. And of course, neither Kurt and North Scotland uh, finished high school. they both left at the age of uh, 14. So it's all about the sort of vision about what are the uh, practical policies that a government can introduce, which are geared towards making life better, not geared simply towards graphs on somebody's GDP charts increasing. That's important. You want the, you know, the economy to grow, but you want the economy to mean something positive in people's lives. You want society to grow as well. And that is something that they thought the government could actually take positive action to influence that and contribute to that.
3: I, I love that quote that you've got about um, Curtin wasn't held back. I'm not precise, but wasn't held back. Uh, his education wasn't held by, held back by his schooling.
4: That's right. So that's, that line's based on a, um, a Mark Twain quote. Wow. Uh, I believe it is. I hope I'm not misquoted, but it's uh, to, to totally, horribly paraphrase uh, Mark Twain, it's, I never let my schooling get in the way of my education.
6: That's it, yeah. And I
4: think that's what you really see in this, um, their, this their careers, is that you see a process of education. You see that they're, they're learning about the world and the way it works through their engagement in the labour movement, through their interaction with key figures. Uh, for Tom Mann, uh, so for John Kern, the key figure was Tom Mann, who's a um, very well-known labour leader from Britain. Uh, for James... Scullin, the uh, big influence was uh, somebody called Edward Grainler, who is um, a very significant figure in the Australian Workers Union. People kind of taught them and took them under their wing and then they go their own sort of process of learning how to communicate, to write uh, and so on through being political activists. And that political activism then teaches them the skills that they later have as Prime Minister. One of my favourite little tidbits from that is that Curtin was speaking, uh, as Prime Minister, was speaking to a uh, journalist about his approaching parliament and how he delivered speeches because of course giving speeches as a wartime prime minister extraordinarily important way to maintain morale and so on and he said that he learned this trick when he was young where you would sort of make sure that you put the back of your neck right back against your collar and so that you know you could feel it hitting against the collar and that is how you would make sure that you projected your voices um, as far as possible well this is something that he learned because he used to deliver um, week after week public addresses at the Yarra Bank as a young political activist. That's how he learned how to speak. And no skills directly influenced the way he acted as Prime Minister. So it's really interesting, you know, the education of actually being involved in politics is something that you see throughout their lives. And, of course, the fact that they just happen both to be, you know, quite brilliant uh, minds, uh, independent of the formal training session, that didn't hurt, hurt either.
3: Yeah, it's just kind of interesting because it's a little bit like Paul Keating, you know what?
4: Yeah, it is. I definitely think there's um, sort of parallels there. You think Keating, uh, of course, left... Uh, school well before what you'd now call um, completion or before year 12 is somebody who did like have quite a serious process of education through his engagement within the labor party with key figures Um, when you hear keating talk about his sort of political career you could often see that there's that sort of trend of talking to people um, who are in positions of influence within the labor party or um, industry or wherever it may be to really just try and work out the dynamics of okay how does this stuff actually work and you see something similar with Curtin and Scullin. Like, they were deep readers. They knew a great deal about the world. They often engaged in not just newspapers but works of theory and um, so on. Also both loved Shakespeare and you know, understood human behaviour through uh, sort of more artistic realms as well. But they're both intrigued with finding out from people how things actually worked and how you know, the different gears sort of fit together. And a sort of practical education, you know, it's, um, you know, it's the sort of thing that when they do then come into government, that they've got this entire backgrounding that they can and understanding of the world that they can bring in uh, with them, even though as Scullin did say when he ascended to the prime ministership, he'd become the editor of a newspaper without ever being a journalist and prime minister without ever being a minister. Yeah. So they're quite conscious that something were lacking in their uh, in their backgrounds, but on the other hand, it was compensated by that experience and that knowledge.
3: Yeah, yeah, they're unassuming, but uh, but they uh, grasp the nettle <laughs> to mix my metaphors.
4: <laughs> well, I think it's you know, it's, it's one of the things that is particularly inspiring when you think that for people who didn't have the opportunities that many um, other people at their time did have and subsequent Australians, you know, for somebody like me, for instance, it's quite grounding that the reason why people like myself were able to um, finish high school and then go to university and so on is because of the very serious and the very substantial social investment that was made to allow that education system to then be reached out to more and more um, people who previously never would have had that opportunity. Born a century ago, I would have been like Curtin Scullin. Yeah. So you're aware when you're somebody who has benefited from that system, that the effort that it takes, you know, uh, a lot of his early career, Curtin was working uh, full-time as an estimator in the Titan factory, um, and full-time hours were very, very intensive hours. And then he would go out afterwards and read deeply into the night with borrowed books from the, the local library. Like... This is, you know, tough. Art and you know labor, like intellectual labor, like it is not easy to spend your life sort of like trying to understand the world through that kind of engagement of full-time work and then full-time um, study on top of it, self-motivated study. You know, this is pretty incredible effort and I think it sort of shows something about their characters and their dedication to understanding the world that they were in. Yeah. But it also shows the, you know, the real lie out there that, you know, you have to have a formal education or a university degree or someone or so on to be educated. But of course the reality is that there's, you know, many, many people who've been denied that opportunity, but know a huge amount about the world. Just because they don't have a degree, doesn't mean that they're not extraordinarily um, aware of what's going on and how things actually fit together. Just like Curtin, just like Scullin, just like Paul Keating, and just like many other people who, you know, I'm sure all of us know in our own lives.
3: Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. I think the whole thing's fascinating and like I said, I, I've really enjoyed reading the book and it's put a whole lot of things into place. I mean, even down to the fact that I was brought up in Oh, thank you. I, I was brought up in Warrnambool, so the fact that um uh Scull, oh, yeah. Scullin I know all the places that Scullin must have done uh his speeches at and he thought about the halls that he yeah, to yeah. Get it in and stuff. My God, how courageous was he. <laughs>
4: Yeah, well, it's yeah, it's, it's really interesting as well. You know, I think with these sort of figures is that sometimes because of their great places in history, you can, they can feel a little bit disconnected. But then, you know, to so remember, it's one of the things I try and do with the book. Like, these are real human beings. I mean, I talk about one of Curtin's first ever political speeches that he delivered and talk about, you know, just imagine what he would have been feeling yeah. um, and then what the atmosphere are. Like, these are real human beings in real places that we know and we can connect to. Well, that's
3: what um, I think. You We're know, we
4: trying to get active.
3: That's why, and there's other things you do that you're really clever as well. You actually, each each person is described physically. So, you know, we get these Mm. headshots of these guys, but they were tall, for example. I found that really fascinating. I like the way you do that. That was really neat. I thought you didn't and I
4: hope certain. You know, so I hope certain things come through as well. Like one of the things for me that was really important in particular was you know to, to give a sense of the human factor of both of these people and the fact that you know they were human beings. So, for instance, Scullin, because of you know the terrible conditions of his prime ministership, you know being prime yeah. minister during the Great Depression, uh, I think that there's a lot of his life which is then being kind of forgotten, and that people don't really you know they can't connect to the broader like really significant contribution he made. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I really want people to get a sense of, apart from the fact that he was incredibly intelligent, he's incredibly moral, he was deeply committed to these ideas, he was really funny.
6: Yeah.
4: Like, you know, and I talk in the, a whole bunch of his speeches, I talk about his the jokes that he used to make and stuff like that. And, you know, like these, these people were quite, you know, they're far broader um, sort of aspects of their lives and they were more interesting than a lot of these sort of portraits by their very nature because they are quite general can really get across. And I think that's the nice thing about these sort of, uh, you know, following somebody from the early years of their life. Um, throughout their careers rather than focusing just on that later stage, is it gives you an aspect of that human factor. And yeah, I think that's really important, that particularly with somebody like, yeah, for somebody like Curtin, you know, who is, you know, for me, like just flat out somebody who I've admired for many, many years, and I know other people do and see him as one of the great prime ministers, you know, is that, you know, while it's important to remember him and that guy, it's also important to remember that he was a real person and that, you know, we all consider sort of live our lives to try and emulate the better ideals, even if we'll never live after them entirely. And, you know, that, Somebody like that can actually be an inspiration for our lives rather than you know, simply somebody who we kind of have stuck somewhere in a history book or in a parliamentary portrait somewhere that we may or may not look to. you know, somebody for us to engage with and think about and relate to and sort of think about their significance of our own, to our own lives and be inspired by and to take action because of you know these are very live people you know in society say if we allow them to be yeah
3: yeah. Um, I love the fantastic uh, thing about the hair too, Scullin's hair. You
4: know, that quiff? Oh, it's extraordinary, yeah It's amazing And I've, I've got to be honest Since people have seen the, the pictures on the front cover yeah. The number one most commented thing on uh, so far Has been how incredibly stylish Skull and Tear was Yeah, what... uh, And when you look at the front cover, you can see it it's... <laughs> What a man it's, uh, I've, I've, threatened on, I've threatened on many occasions to try and bring back that style But I'm afraid I don't quite have the hair for it So I'm, yeah. I'm letting people down But It's very so I, I think we could, we could well see more of our politicians yeah, very Irish. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and he's, he's Scullin's Irish, you know, sort of Irish background and both he and Curtin shared one, but, uh, and also his, his sort of Catholicism are both very, very significant to his sense of uh, personhood and identity and, you know, probably also responsible for a fair chunk of that really good humour that he had as well. So,
3: Yeah, yeah. Thanks for talking to me, Liam.
4: No, so, my pleasure. Thank you so much for giving me a chance to talk about Curtin and Scullin. As I said, it's uh, one of my favourite things to do, so I always appreciate the opportunity.
3: You're back with Danny on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. Earlier in the year, Joan Coxage, former Victorian MP and rabble rouser of the left, was honoured at the Eureka Dinner for all her work fighting effectively for the rights of her fellow Victorians in a variety of roles. And Joan was a leading light in the anti-Vietnam War movement, or should I say the American War on Vietnam, It is the uh, 50th anniversary of the moratorium on May 8th, and it is important to remember that people have fought and won big changes in Australian society against big odds. Just as an aside, Joan has released a booklet called Background to the Vietnam War, authorised by the Vietnam Moratorium Committee, to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the 1970 moratorium rally in Melbourne, it's published by Vulcan Press. Uh, uh, there is or was a celebration set for 6 p.m. on Friday, May the 8th, at Victoria Trades Hall. You'll have you'll have to look on their website to check where that stands during COVID-19 land. This is Joe Co- Joan Coxidge's speech at the last Eureka dinner.
7: Thank you very much for inviting me to speak here tonight because this is a very important gathering. And I'd like to start with the story of two brothers who were involved in the Eureka Stockade. One was my great-grandfather, Dan Hogan. Dan was born in Liverpool and in 1848 was apprenticed into the Merchant Navy And at the age, at the age of 16. He joined the crew of the Mary Ray which sailed around the world, he later joined the Royal Navy, sailing to Australia on the HMS Phantom, which docked in Melbourne. And Dan was a member of the naval contingent who marched to Ballarat to quell the riot. Whereas on the opposite side of the conflict was his brother, Jeremiah Hogan, my great-uncle, who was born in Kalani in 1826, Jeremiah arrived in Australia in 1852 and was a gold miner at the Eureka Stockade. He was arrested after the riot and released without charge and spent the rest of his life in Ballarat working as a tailor. To complete the connection, I was born in Ballarat because my father worked in the railways. But we didn't stay long because the winters were too cold, my mother said, so we returned home to Kensington, very working class back then, not like it is now. And this was at the height of the Great Depression, a terrible time when unemployment peaked at over 35% with another third on short time when work was rationed to one week and three and wages were slashed. And I remember the polio epidemic in 1938 and the 1939 bushfires when pieces of bark and ash covered our streets and the sun was blotted out under a cloud of dense smoke and World War II when we had rationing, blackouts and air raid shelters in our school grounds and I had a brother in the RAAF and an uncle who was one of the rats of Tobruk and we saw films of concentration camps and US atom bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki when the Japanese were already trying to surrender but this was intended as a a message to the Soviet Union, the first shot in Washington's Cold War. After the war, Britain was broke and Pax Pax Britannia was replaced with the Truman Doctrine and we grovelled along with our new American masters. And in the following years, I lost track of all the military incursions, takeovers and coups, it took place against nations that upset the yankees like cuba like chile nearly all of latin america and later iraq libya and syria and so on since it was founded in 1776 the us has been at war for 214 out of its 235 years of existence with only 21 years during that time and it wasn't waging war against someone or other In 1953 I married Cedric and had three kids and then along came Vietnam which catapulted me into the anti-war movement like thousands of others around the world horrified at what we were seeing on our TV screens. The monks setting fire to themselves. Napalm raining down on defenceless human beings and defoliants destroying crops, killing the earth itself. This was before correspondence were embedded with the military and could report what they saw, not like today. But individuals aren't worth two bob when confronting governments and war machines. Unions know that. So I put my art on hold and, in the spirit of Eureka, joined the anti-war and anti-conscription movement. I really hated meetings but ended up being swamped in the damn things. And I was a founding member of the broad moratorium movement and a member of Save Our Sons. We held rallies and protests and took part in all sorts of actions, some legal and some decidedly not, and some of us went to jail. As my husband said, he'd married what he thought was a reasonably conventional wife and mother and ended up with a jailbird. (laughs) But we were full of optimism and good humour because we believed we could not only stop the war, but change the world and we always had the support of trade unions. One thing led to another. A few of us noticed that at every anti-war meeting or rally, there were men taking notes and photos who followed us around, and we wanted to, do- to know who the hell they were and made it our business to find out and learned there was a variety of snoopers in our midst. There was Special Branch, ASIO, ASIS, and other outfits like the Commonwealth Cops. And we didn't reckon they belonged in a so-called democratic society. And so a few of us started the Committee for the Abolition of Political Police, CAP, to play them at their own game. Using unconventional means, we found out who they were and where they lived and put out lists of their names and addresses. (laughs) Distributed them far and wide, including letterboxing the streets where they lived. <laughs> now, the Snoops hated our guts, but could only ring us up and issue threats because what we did back then was legal. We put out loads of material to tell people what was happening booklets, leaflets, letters, and a book which I have here, Rooted in Secrecy, which some of them are available, which I'm happy to donate. the Eureka Cause so if anybody wants to get one and donate good on them so and that was published almost 40 years ago makes me feel very old but except no publisher would touch it with a barge pole so we had to scrounge around and publish it ourselves but what we wrote back then still rings true and if we did now what we did back then we'd end up in Guantanamo Bay in orange jumpsuits Now, Ken and Jerry are dead, but I'm still here, and they have long memories. But it gave us insights into how our society works. When Chile was done over by the CIA in 1973, we could see parallels happening with the newly elected Whitlam government, a government the Yankees didn't like at all because Whitlam had elements of independence. He pulled us out of the Vietnam War stopped conscription and released draft resistors from jail, started Medibank, abolished university fees, established legal aid and a lot more. He upset our American friends even more when he demanded a list of all CIA agents operating in this country. Among his other crimes was the loans affair, when Minister Connor tried to buy back the farm to get back our foreign-owned resources to where they belonged, right here. His methods were clunky, but what he tried to do was right. And then, of course, there was Pine Gap, the CIA's most valuable overseas base that sits near Alice Springs. The Pine Gap Treaty, <coughs> signed on the 9th of December 1966, stated that after nine years, either party could terminate the lease on one year's notice. On December 9, 1975, Whitlam could have acted, but he didn't get the chance. When Parliament returned on November the 11th, he was sacked by Governor-General Kerr, a nasty drunk with impeccable CIA connections. There are many unanswered questions. Why didn't Whitlam do his homework before appointing this creep? And why do academics write about the dismissal as if it was a homegrown plot when there is abundant evidence of CIA involvement. And why, why did Bob Hawke tell us to cool it when we should have taken to the streets and stayed there? (laughs) Key players, key players in the ALP learned their lesson well. Whitlam clammed up, and the far-right New South Wales machine took over the party. They ruthlessly eliminated progressive elements and turned corruption into an art form. And it's been a downhill run ever since. Once egalitarian Australia, which led the world in workers' rights and votes for women, now resembles the US, where 1% own the place... 20% are doing relatively okay because they work for the 1% and 80% are hanging in by their fingernails. Counted as full time, even if you only work for a few hours a week with no sick leave, holiday pay, security or other basics unions fought so hard for, you can suddenly land on the scrap heap and have to fight like buggery to get a lousy payout. The corporates love our system because they can screw workers into the ground if they can get away with it. And they are getting away with it because we're at the mercy of the free market to be plundered and looted, where costs continue to go through the roof and maintenance and services go down the plug hole, And when we run into trouble, we're foisted onto a foreign call centre. So it's hardly surprising that just about everyone you meet is fed up to the back teeth at the lack of accountability, at the rorts and the way the rorters can get away with their rotting. And here we are again, surrounded by Christmas crap and messages of goodwill, <laughs> but not for those at the bottom of the heap. Infuriating when you see what Australia's top ten corporate thieves are getting as they cream off the system about 270 times the amount an average full-time Aussie worker earns, and as for those poor buggers on new Newstart and the pension. Leading the pack is Qantas Chief Alan Joyce, who pocketed a staggering $23,876,351 last year. A half-head behind him is Macquarie Group CEO Nicholas Moore with $23,860,000 in his annual kick. And then there's the bonuses and the kickbacks for what? Sacking workers to increase the bottom line? To describe them as having a sense of entitlement doesn't even come close. It's like calling Adolf Hitler a naughty boy. (laughs) And I haven't even mentioned the banks. (laughs) Never have we needed a stronger trade movement than we do right now. Instead, I'm afraid, and I think Dave could be right, they're about to be belted over the head with more appalling fascist-style legislation. There's a reprieve, and you have to work like hell at the moment so it doesn't come to fruition. But our shrunken media, one of the most narrowly based in the Western world, has got even more shrunken when Nine Ed's Entertainment took over Fairfax, with Murdoch's malign influence still hovering. Dissent, once tolerated, has gone. America's most celebrated journalist, Seymour Hirsch, can only get published in Germany. And John Pilger, who used to appear in The Guardian, was purged a few years ago. Our ABC used to provide a bit of an alternative, but not now. Its budget's been cut again, so I suppose its journals have to toe the official line. But if they must interview government ministers, they should demand answers to their questions when many interviewers don't seem to know what questions to ask in the first place. (laughs) And they've certainly thrown Julian Assange under a bus. When Wikileaks did the job all journalists should be doing by exposing official lies and corruption... the ABC and the Age reported that Sweden had dropped its rape allegations against Assange because of the time factor, which is total bullshit, because Sweden has only ever been a stalking horse for the US government. The changes against Julian have nothing to do with Sweden, or sex, or the 2016 US election, but everything to do with publishing the Iraqi war logs, the Afghani war logs and US State Department cables, all of them exposing massive war crimes committed by US military intelligence, the deep state. And now that the US and Britain have Julian where they want him on the cusp of being extradited to the US, they can say, thank you, Sweden, for smearing him and undermining support for his freedom. Just bugger off because we no longer need you. And it's interesting to note that Trump has just pardoned three US soldiers convicted of serious war crimes. And we're being told about a Chinese spy ring, which may or may not be true, when other things should be top of our list, like climate change. For those old enough, you might remember the Petrov Affair the name of a married couple who worked at the Soviet Embassy in Canberra in 1954. Vladimir, a nasty drunk, made a deal with ASIO without telling his wife that he was part of a Soviet spy network and wanted protection to become an Australian citizen. Menzies trumpeted it in Parliament and won an unwinnable election. But in 1954-55... The Petrov Commission failed to unearth one single spy or traitor. Today, if you substitute China for Russia, it's a case of here we go again. And here we are at the end of 2019 with an unhinged Trump in the White House who's facing impeachment and is surrounded by other crackpots (laughs) and an Australian government that has to be one of the worst in living memory... And he's led, the government is led by a Bible-bashing fundamentalist who hates unions and workers in general and intends enacting laws to shut us all up, as if there aren't enough of them already, especially after 9-11 took away huge chunks of our freedoms. And as for the opposition, not much I could say about that. <laughs> In this situation, the very worst thing we can do is to be silenced. So we have to fight back in every way we can and make as much noise as we can, loud and clear, because next year is shaping up to be a Lulu. And we must never stop fighting for an independent, socialist Australia. It's also it's also the end of the year and I reckon we need a break. So <laughs> catch up with friends, share a bottle or two and take care on our crazy roads because we need you, every single one of you. Viva Eureka and Viva Cuba.
1: A weak solidarity, freaky team listener. When, when, look, I'm just not feeling at all well, listener. In fact, there could be interruptions, tests, and that sort of thing. You'll, you'll oh. have to excuse them, because I'm laid up in the toxicology ward here at Royal Melbourne. They're, they're trying to clear the poison out of my body. But the worst part is, I'm green all over. Green, not, not politically or naively or enviously green, but literally green. It was probably my own fault, but. When a reliable expert gives us advice about how to avoid coronavirus, we must listen and if appropriate, act. And when that expert is the big supremo of the US, of the UN, of the US, of the world, you think he knows what he's talking about. So so it may be the way I administered that supermarket house brand of eucalyptus disinfectant or Or the needle may have been contaminated. It it could be my own fault and and not a problem with the sage advice. The miracle cure developed in a thought bubble. Perhaps I should have just drunk it. (laughs) Whatever, I'm not feeling too good, I tell you. After all, the medical expert Donald Trump or the Poor in one of his protracted performances this week said the US was leading the world in testing for COVID-19. Well, they've got plenty of guinea pigs to try them out on, the most in the whole world. Leading the world, he said, other countries are calling us to ask, what are you doing? Greatest, what are you doing ever, ever? And we can understand that countries all over calling with the incredulous question, what are you doing? Back here, thank goodness, we're independent of people like Donald of the U.S. Of oh, a pure coincidence that a day after Donald attacked the World Health Organization, Troubler was he called for an inquiry into the World Health Organization. And as Donald blames evil China for making him react slowly to the virus he reacted quickly to, Troubler was he just happens to call for an inquiry into... Evil China and this week Big Supremo scuttled them son told Evil China true blue Aussie would not be dictated to. Strong, independent not dictated to. Donald would be proud of him. Best not dictated to ever, ever. Those who like Donald and them understand the delicate flower that is the economy know its health must now take precedence over the health of those who provide the economy's profits. Because unlike the economy, people are expendable. And, and to a person, these wise people know the recipe for putting the economy we know and love back together again. Tax reform, industrial relations reform, deregulation, fast-tracked infrastructure... For one thing caring employers have learned from the disruption to business as usual is the extent lazy, avaricious workers and evil unions have been ripping them off. Rip-offs, a recovering patient cannot afford. Not relapse into crippling work practices like wages and conditions. Another commendable difference between caring employers and lazy avaricious workers is that every word, every action, every suggestion for reform from caring employers is for the common good of all of us. Selfless, selfless, selfless. While we know for workers and unions it's the very opposite. Self, self, self. And one of the most selfless emerging this week is Michael Hint's real name, a quote, London based billionaire hedge fund manager managing thirty billion and who has been a major donor to conservative governments therefore a truly great man so great her most gracious majesty Like Sir Richard, it's my grandson we mentioned last week, knighted for services to making heaps and heaps and heaps of money. Sir Michael proffered some sensible advice to our government this week, well to good, liberty, freedom and democracy governments everywhere, and displayed the broad social concern these people bring, concern only for the common good. Governments must urgently reopen their economies, he advised. We need to open up in a way that allows society to continue to function. Lockdown, which has resulted in a halt to economic activity, is not sustainable. It is damaging to society, to people's aspirations, and to the economy. See, it's not sustainable to protect people's health without balancing that with the health of the economy, because society must continue to function. And I'm sure we all understand Sir Michael's idea of society functioning. Do we hear this sort of egalitarian common sense from the evil unions? No, we don't. Now, a little quiz. Remember last week we gave the That's the Spirit Award to transfer the Wealth Urban for increasing its toll fees in the middle of the crisis? Well, even if you don't remember, we did. With the proud recipient explaining it was a major contribution to public health. One person cars are the safest way to ensure social distancing, spokesperson Chuck Bloated explained like socially distancing people from their reduced incomes, we commented, but we pointed out an exception. One-person cars are not the safest way if we're planning to protest at the treatment of no-proper-papers queue-jumping illegal boat people. Very, very unsafe. So, our quiz. Spot the difference. As a car cavalcade of people, well, well, distanced from each other, copped $43,000 in fines for breaking the distancing rules by protesting at the treatment of no proper papers, etc. Crowded into a Preston hotel, and one protester charged with incitement. Notice those who broke the rules by gathering at the honour train killing memorial in St Kilda Road last Saturday, chatted to the sorry the cops. But no charges, and a protest that the rules be lifted illegal because it broke the rules it wanted lifted. Again, no charges, just a friendly roadside chat with the constabulary. So, spot the difference. If you miss this item, bad, bad news, listener. Sorry to bear sad tidings. Arguably, the most devastating victim of cancelled events due to they've cancelled. The Logies, the opportunity for readers of some deeply philosophical television magazine full of in-depth information to cast their votes for their favourites. There goes our cultural fix for the year. Maybe with a bit of luck they'll realise they didn't miss them and thus, no, no, just, just wishful thinking I'm afraid. A rush of urgent action. Oh, my God, yes, it's all happening out there. A rush of urgent action in the intensive care ward across the corridor. Goodness me, it, it's a huge medical team. Doctors Jennifer Worcester Cost Workers and Innes Will Cost the Workers and other prominent and eminent doctors of the economy like Philip Prophet's Too Low instructing their appointed surgeons, Doctors Friedem Icebergs and more Lashson, in an attempt to resuscitate the patient. Goodness me, the patient does look, does not look well. It's as, it's as white as I'm green. They're working desperately with defibrillators and oxygen and sticking things into every possible place you can stick things. But, but there's very little response. The medical team are looking more and more desperate. You can't die. They're hysterical in tears. You can't die. We, we love you. We love you. What can we do? I hear someone yell. The cure is obvious, a voice of reason diagnosed. Tax reform, industrial relations reform, deregulation, fast-tracked infrastructure. Just outside the door, a very moving sight, ignored by the eminent practitioners, Nurse Anthony, all being oozy, was in tears at the sight of the emaciated patient. I promise you the the workers whom I represent and to, to whom I devote my every second will do all we can to help resuscitate the patient he promised. The eminent practitioners scowled. You people are the source of this dreadful illness, they spat into their mouths which isn't very healthy, like me. I now know how Kermit felt. It's not easy being. Good morning.
5: blown motor for a service brushing your teeth when they got holes to fix. the purpose, No, you quit in the darts when you got cancer, how could I prevent this you ask but know the answer how many decades have passed dumping on the climate, clear fell in the planet and wrecking environments, you think we had another planet to go to but we don't, we're like a bunch of people lost at sea wrecking our own boat, wait whoa what did you say, conspiracy agenda climate the dharmas, new world order the main offender, look, the main offender is you, burying your other- dead. Head in the sand, garden CO2, multinational scum. Just keep on running the profits from machinery that's cooking the world and won't stop it. There's no time for people like you to come to your senses. So step back and watch as the revolution commences. Are we seriously gonna wait until then, no North before we step on the brakes? We're leaving the way too late, and that's a fact. you gonna get out on the street and take the power back. Are we? We're just going to wait until there's no North Pole Before we step on the brakes We're leaving the way too late And that's a fact we going to get out on the street And take the power back of the future, listen to me. We're gonna charge them with mass murder. Can't you see? The dirty bastards knew exactly what they were doing. They got a million warnings, but they insisted on still polluting. How they were barking out orders from the top, like burn all the carbon reserves. that forgot, more than happy to leave your planet trash. And so for a brief moment, they could make up under the cash. That's not a future that I'd like to contemplate. I'd rather be part of a mass movement to break the state. Emergency action, decarbonize across the globe. Nationalize the energy sector, yeah, lock alone. Make all of the wind and the solar publicly owned. Get it done right to keep prices under control. The pollies and the battens and the media barons. The barriers we got to bulldoze to make it happen. We're gonna wait until there's no North Pole before we step on the brakes, we're leaving it way too late. And that's a fact, gonna get out on the street and take the power back. Ah, we seriously gonna wait until there's no North Pole before we step on the brakes. We're leaving it way too late. And that's a fact, gonna get out on the street and take the power back.
3: You're with me, Annie, on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. We're serving up some politics with your toast. Over the weeks, several listeners have asked, where's Humphrey McQueen? And what does he think about the COVID-19 situation politically and economically? Well, Humphrey is still there, just a little harder to get to. I caught up with him on Zoom, and this is what he had to say. One
2: of the things I've been saying to everybody as said about the 2008 economic collapse was that, as Conrad Lennon said, the capitalist class can survive every crisis if it can shift the burden onto workers and working people. And that's the basic thing that we have to remember at all times about this, is that nothing is going to improve just because there's been a crisis that what will happen is there's a woman on the ABC who's been going on saying, oh, you know, the very, it'll affect the very rich and the very poor. I said, yes, the rich will get richer and the poor will get poorer, if not dead, unless we can improve our fighting situation. That on every issue, they're all decided by the relative strength of the contending classes. And we have to rec- face up to the fact that the strength of the working people in Australia has been in decline for the last 40 years and that the last five or six weeks and the next few months are not going to be very amenable to that being improved as long as you have social distancing. Because the solidarity, the strength that comes from being a class does to a degree depend on being able to get together. When Marx talked about the historical role of the working class. He wasn't saying that in some way workers are more noble or anybody else. What he was saying was that the nature of the capitalist system by the middle of the 19th century was bringing huge numbers of people together in one place to work. And that cooperation at the workbench opened the way to political cooperation the formation of unions, political parties, all of those things. And one of the things that social distancing is undoing or adding to is the ways in which the working class has been atomised over the last 40 years. I mean, it goes back longer than 40 years, but but particularly um, over the last 40 years in Australia. And when we're thinking about how we're going to come out of this, we have to face up to this. Have to face up to the fact that our position is one of weakness and they have the state and we don't. Uh, that is their permanent form of organisation. Uh, that, that sense that they have this system of organised way of running things. I mean, it's not just the police and the army, although they've got them as well. It's not just all their surveillance systems. They have the whole way of maintaining the way in which the system operates and we don't have anything comparable to that and so when we're preparing for how we're going to defend ourselves how we're going to get things back closer to where we'd like them to be at least not to allow the worst to happen to us because that's what they're aiming at there is no doubt i mean you don't have to be any kind of smart operator or or observer to see that there are plenty of corporations out there who are looking upon this as the bonanza opportunity that they've been waiting for. They've been trying to get these things. And now, ah, wow, we'll be able to, to move in on them. And that applies to things like online education. All those corporations that have been weaving their way into the school system, pushing all this nonsense about oh, if you buy this book, then your child will be better at the NAPLAN tests, all of those things. That's been going on. They're going to try and harvest everything they can. And the public health system will be the same. I must say I was greatly, well, amused is not quite the word, but a week or so ago you probably heard that, oh, how awful it is that the private hospitals have had to close down and not do elective surgery in the private hospitals. Well, I shouldn't say private hospitals because they're not. They're corporate hospitals, very often now run by US-run health corporations or by groups of surgeons. That when the doctors say, oh, these people are out there suffering, they've been a lot of people poor who can't afford to get health cover When did the surgeons worry about them and having to delay the opportunity? What, who is really suffering in this are the surgeons because they're not getting their income.
3: And not Um, to mention, not to mention that elective surgery isn't what people think it is. Elective elective surgery are things like, like, as someone was telling me, a little boy whose tonsils are so large, enlarged, that he can't actually speak properly. I mean, you'd think that that was a necessary surgery, but it's yeah. called elective, and that's yeah. just one of the many.
2: Well, the other thing, of course, about it is for really difficult surgery, they don't do them in these corporate hospitals. They send them to the public system. and You know, they don't, they don't handle those hard things. It was a wonderful remark that the New South Wales government contracted out the big new hospital that it built um, on the North Shore, and they weren't taking heart patients. And I was watching this when I was in the gym one afternoon, and someone had put the line of text underneath. And there's a lot of wonderful political jokes that appear in the text because they get the words wrong. And on this occasion, what this corporate corporation had said: "Oh, we don't do it because we hadn't we hadn't traded to do to do heart patients." Um, And I thought, yeah, that's exactly right. They haven't got it wrong. This is a trade as far as you're concerned. So we can pick up on these things and we can use them to fight back, but they are just verbal spars that we can have. We have to get ourselves aware of what they're going to do to us. That's the first thing. And we've got to also understand why they have to do it. They're not doing it because they're nasty people. They may be nasty people, but that's not the point. The point is, that the capitalist system has to expand in order to exist. It doesn't have a choice. And that's why the 2008 thing was a problem. That's why we're having all of this government money being poured into keeping the economy going. It was fascinating.
3: It was sort of fascinating because people were saying that uh, uh, giving money out like that, it was sort of like a left socialist which is kind of bizarre.
2: Well, no way, no way, as you're implying what it actually is when they talk about who are the essential workers. We've got to ask ourselves, essential for what? And as far as they're concerned, what workers are essential for are either to add value or, when the value is added to the commodities, to be in a shop or somewhere to realise the value into whatever amount of profit they can get out of that so that the workers are essential for the capitalist system to keep going. Um, they don't care about us otherwise. And if they could find some way of doing it without us, then they would. And indeed, in many ways, they're moving in the, all those kinds of ways um, with robots and automation and things anyway. So that, that's the first thing we have to understand, that you know, we are essential to them. They're not essential to us, but they have the state power in order to make themselves essential to the system. Now, right. well, you know, we can we can build even I think even even further on this and talk about the ways in which that system has to expand. And when people talk about the rise of neoliberalism, which drives me batty, because what they do is they ignore the fact that it's just a form of capitalism. That why we say capitalism. This is a period within capitalism. Capitalism changes. Can't stay the same. Fights different ways of aiming at the same thing, which is to expand. And what happened from the late 70s onward, when the big crisis struck then, after the collapse of the post-war boom, um, what they did then was they looked around for new areas into which to expand. And they expanded into what I call colonising at home. They didn't go colonising abroad, as they had done, although they kept that up as well, but they colonised at home. They found more areas inside countries like Australia to move into. Education, health, housing, welfare of every kind. And we see it now with things like the National um, Scheme for people who have been disabled. I mean, that's all, you know...
3: Well, it's super right? superannuation um, is is exactly yeah. that, right? Yeah. It's a yeah. private... All of these.
2: Yeah, yeah. But it's not privatisation. It's selling out to corporates. That's the thing we've got to remember. People I mean, were private. I mean, it's like people talk about private schools. Well, before this, there were private schools. There were people who were homeschooling their kids. There are about 20,000 of them in the whole country. The rest of them are tax subsidised non-government schools and the same is true of the so-called private hospitals the amount of tax subsidy that those places get directly and indirectly but they of course the word private makes it all sound warm and cuddly as if it's just something between between a couple of individuals so Uh,
3: so so let i mean growth expansion economy is one thing that's the capitalist mode yep An example of how they make themselves essential to the system when they're actually not essential, which is the thing that needs to be got across, is the thing about um, uh, the destruction of environment and the thing of uh, green economies, right, Uh, uh, sustainable energy. The idea that you can continue you can move into wind, solar, etc um, using a capitalist paradigm just like the use of a capitalist paradigm in welfare areas is actually nuts would would you agree I
2: mean, Well it is if that's what you do, but if you keep i mean if i mean say we now stop producing coal entirely in the next 24 hours, and we move right across to all the wind turbines, what they would have to do would be to overproduce wind turbines. I mean, they couldn't stop the drives to overproduction because those drives to overproduction, I mean, if they fix up that one area of the environment of, of the of the of the total pollution that comes out of it and goes up into, into global warming, um, if if they fix that bit, they would still be plundering the wealth of nature in every other department. That's the bit they can't stop. They can move away from coal, but like three hundred years ago, they moved away from charcoal to coal because they had to, because they were running out of trees. They can do it again, but what they can't do and still be capitalist is not plunder everything else out of the wealth of nature. And then once they plunder, I mean, they plunder it by using and exploiting human labour. The two things have to go together for them. They don't have a choice that they can do one or the other, and that we have to get all of these things very clear. And it's by no means easy, because how often have we said we are all in this society subject to the super-saturated solution of bourgeois bullshit, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, We don't hear any of the things we've just been talking about. We hear absolutely the opposite all the time. And we all, to some extent, fall victim for it. You can't possibly go through life being bombarded with all this stuff all the time. People say, oh, wasn't it awful that people went off and bought all that toilet paper? (laughs) What have we all been taught to do for the last 100 years? Buy, buy, buy. Spend, spend, spend. That's what the whole of the marketing episode for the last hundred years has been about. But Why also, people... but also, like... Humphrey,
3: the thing that was most fascinating about the buy, buy, buy of the toilet paper was that someone had inside information, and they decided not to share it with other people.
2: Some people did. I mean, but you know, I mean, it's, it's this notion that we have to think of everything that's going on around us within the capitalist system. There's that's a all. kind of, you know. I mean, I've been using this phrase for some years now. There's a kind of market totalitarianism operating in which it's not, you know, that there is no space outside that whole notion of buy, 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 spend, spend, spend. Everywhere, about everything, you are constantly bombarded in this kind of way. I mean, I'm interested to see what Apple are going to do in trying to get their next generation out of the big factory in China, which when the next generation comes up in October, I think it is, um, I mean, they've got 220,000 workers there in that one factory. And they have to produce all those phones in five weeks because Apple is constantly making the final changes to them. So, and part of that is not that people need, people don't need to buy the, the phone on the, you know, the first three days. But owning it on the first three days is part of why you buy it. That sense of we are ahead of everybody else. And that's what we've been sold. Not just that, oh, you've got to have a new phone because it's a better one. You've got a sense that I bought this new phone before everybody else gets it. And that's part of the mass marketing that that we've been totally subjected to. Uh, And it applies to every area of life. So, anyway, look. We've got to go back to the the old basics of, you know, I'm reading an article only only today that was making one of the other basic points. There's no such thing as a fair day's pay. Uh, These basic rules that the working class grew up on and we've been separated from, that they are not going to hand us this notion that, oh, everything is going to change now. But there's a lot of good people in the world who do want it to change, who don't want it to be like this and are hopeful that this crisis will produce a different result. But it will only produce that out of mass struggle. It won't happen because suddenly people are suddenly struck by the notion that, oh, we should all be nice to each other. Well, let's think about it. uh, Yeah, yeah, let's think about it on another level.
3: Part of this system also uh, creates helplessness, the concept that it's impossible to have any effect. What do you say to that?
2: Well, that we get bombarded with it all the time. I mean, all of the violence about wars and other things that are on the television screen at 7 o'clock each night. I mean, they ban things for children before 8.30 or something, but there's more violence on the 7 o'clock news on the ABC than you're ever likely to get for the rest of the night. And what does it do to people? Well, I think for a small number of people, It makes them nastier. It feeds that worst part. But for the vast majority of people, people feel paralysed, as you're saying by it, that, you know, this is so awful out there. Um, How can this be? What can I do? How can I do anything um, to fight about it? And this is a good point to to wind ourselves up on, to remind us about, is that on Friday week, the 8th of May, is the 50th anniversary of the moratorium. And we've got to remind ourselves and each other that in those years, from the from the mid '60s onwards, people went to jail rather than be conscripted to go and murder people in Indochina, and workers stopped work to stop the war. Peace was union business, and it is. We talk about all the things that the capitalist class have to have. One of the things they have to have is that they need us to forget. That we did that 50 years ago in case we do it again that's what they're frightened of and it's our job to remind people to remind ourselves first of all and to send that around encourage people people went out for anzac day and put candles out and did all those things we've got to do the same about the 8th of may Uh, we've got to get it out there i mean one thing we can do online i was talking before about the problems of organizing but we can bring that to everyone's attention again and to make those powerful points that people went to jail. I know a bloke down the South Coast in New South Wales. He tells me, when he was only a kid, quite often his dad would get him out of bed and move him onto the couch and some stranger would get in the bed for the night. The stranger was a draft resistor who the seamen's union was moving around Australia to get away from the wallopers. Uh, that organised working-class resistance to the war. All of those stories, we need to be reminded of them and think, as as another trade union official said to me when I was writing the history of the BLF, he said, what it should be about, Humphrey, is that we want rank-and-file blokes to be able to read it and say, I could do that, and we can, but we can only do it, Together. That's
3: it from me this morning. We spoke with Dr Liam Byrne about Curtin and Scullin. We heard from Joan Coxage about fighting to win and finally from Humphrey McQueen, how we need to approach the next and all future battles for our rights. Keep safe. We'll talk next week.